Hey wonderful people, welcome back to the fifth episode of the second season of Lantern. We're a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. We've seen that you've been most receptive to a Tuesday release date, so expect new episodes every fortnight for the rest of season two on a Tuesday. But this fortnight, we're having a chat with Daisy Mann, who's currently the program manager of Spark Deakin, which is Deakin University's startup and social enterprise accelerator here in Melbourne, Australia as well as talking about her experience as a director of Bendigo Community Bank and co-founding Zana Consulting in Tanzania. So enjoy this one. I'm Daisy and I manage Deakin University's startup program called Spark. I'm also director at Bendigo Community Bank. So we're we're a franchise of of Bendigo Bank and we give 80% of our profits back to the local community. And I founded Social Enterprise Collective a few years ago when I was a student at Deakin that brought together sort of young change makers and we held about four conferences with over 400 young people and we ran innovative conferences and things like that. I'm really passionate about making a substantial scalable difference where it matters the most. Mm. Particularly for me, I'm interested in inspiring young ethnic women is probably the, if I get really specific because I feel like that's a demographic I relate to. You said kind of a scalable impact. Most people don't use kind of phrases like that when they're when they're talking about impact what prompts that i was even this morning i was listening to an audiobook by lila jana and she's one of one of my role models i absolutely love her she published a book called give work i highly recommend it she's also the founder of Luxme, which is like a luxury skincare brand but that gives work to women in africa and they pay three times more but even she was talking about this bringing it back to what you asked i guess idea of like scalable impact so, I mean, you should always, even if you start with something small, that's great. Like, I, I don't ever want to discourage people from being like, oh, often people don't do anything because they're like, this is not big enough. This is not, this is just, I'm making a tiny little dent. What's the point? I'd really like encourage you to even start then and there. But scalable for me, I'm always thinking I'll start and I'm always thinking, how do we grow this? How do we have a bigger impact and how do we scale it? So, for example, like I'll, I'll give you an example. So, when we were doing Seco on campus, I was like, you know, 19 and naive, and I was like, what impact can I have that'll that'll make a big impact and that sort of scales, meaning I can make, you know, I can impact thousands or hundreds of people. And you know, I was sort of looking at what clubs normally do to fundraise while I was at uni. And clubs would normally like, you know, set up a gold coin donation and a sausage sizzle or do a gala and. And I was like, you know, that might raise a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars at best. I mean, how, how do I get even more innovative? And I didn't really want to do a sausage sizzle. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> um, so I thought, hang on. what? You know, and I started learning more. That was when I was learning a lot about social enterprise and procurement. Procurement, you know, it sounds like a boring space, but there are, you know, you make billions of dollars of impact in procurement, which pretty much just means the things that universities buy or um, companies buy or, you know, where they get their stuff from. Uh, and universities are huge places. So I started doing some sort of research and I found out that I think at Deakin, just the top four cafes alone, I was going to go to this nine cafes at Deakin at our Burwood campus. And I was like, just the top four cafes alone. I sort of pretended to be a health student and I <laughs> walked in and I asked them, like, how many bottles of water did you buy last week? Right. I wanted to know exactly how many they ordered, not predicting. I, I want to know exactly how many ordered last week and on average. And I made a modest estimate that they sell about, you know, accurate estimate was $100,000 of bottled water per year for the top four cafes. And 75,000, like, okay, let's make it modest, 75,000 because, you know, people aren't really on campus during summer. I was like, wow. And then I took that fact and I went to Thank You Water, which is a social enterprise that I'm quite inspired by because I think Daniel Flynn, I heard him speak for the first time when I was like 16 and he blew my mind with what they've done there. And they give 100% of net 
profits developing projects. But anyway, I was like, wow, how, how many lives could you impact? Like how many people could get access to clean drinking water if we were to somehow switch from the water they're selling now to thank you water? Mm. We don't own the cafe, so we wouldn't have that say, right? Yeah. And they said to me, uh, about 400 people will have access to clean drinking water if you were to switch that. That number excited me. I was yeah. like, yeah. I can have an impact on 400 lives in developing countries just by doing this. And that's sort of scalable because like once I've done it, it's on repeat. If the cafe stick to stocking it next year, next year, next year, because yeah, I can't force them to stick to it. Yeah. But if it works, then it's, it's quite, I think it has scale, right? So we went about designing a whole campaign and we thought it would take 12 weeks. Mm. But like in, like in two weeks, all four cafes switched. Wow. And, and that's just the cafes. I mean, it astounds me. Like, I'm not a fan of bottled water. It astounds me. Right, there's, there's, I don't buy bottled water. I mean, there's free drinking water, but it doesn't change the fact, rather than being an idealist, it doesn't actually change the fact that, you know, Australia spends lots of money on bottled water, clearly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'd rather make some tangible impact where I can. Yeah. Um, but I'll usually take a drink bottle and things like that. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean by scale, is like thinking bigger. Right. And it's not like I had to, I didn't have to start my own bottled water brand. Like, right. you can, all I did there was support thank you. So, so often people think that change is, I've got to start something and you get a lot of um, young people. And I encourage that. That's amazing. But often where we forget that we can make an impact is go to existing organizations mm. and see how you can, you know, help them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people often forget that they can do that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. With the campaign, I was just wondering, what was the, the campaign specifically? And did you have a team behind you? Yeah, we had yeah. an awesome team at Zico. It was called Thank You Deacon, hashtag okay. Thank You Deacon. And I pretty much like, I didn't read, I'm not going to say invented the campaign out yeah. of creativity. Yeah. I'm really good at replicating things. Okay. So I'm like, I look at how someone's done something, I'm a sponge. I soak it in and right. I can replicate it. Right. So I, I heard how Dan um, Flynn, the CEO of Thank You, had expanded across, or the, sorry, they'd gotten their Thank You bottle water stocked in every 7-Eleven across, I think, Australia. Okay. Yeah. And the way they did it was harness people power. Right. And they asked people to post on the wall of 7-Eleven asking to stock Thank You water because they right. loved it. Right. And I noticed, like, I really studied that campaign. I, I studied the elements of it. Like, it was friendly. It wasn't, hey, 7-Eleven, I demand you stock it, stop stocking water that doesn't give back. It was really friendly, unlike a petition. I think at the same time, we convinced, like, Monash Uni, uh, the seed club there, to run the same campaign. And oh, cool. they did a great job, and that was called Thank You, Monash. And they hosted, you know, did a lot of awareness, and they got 600 signatures. But we had different approaches. For me, my end goal was getting those cafes to stock thank you. Mm. It wasn't as much, raising awareness was one, mm. but I wasn't satisfied until they had a tangible change. Mm. But yeah, so I replicated that, that campaign that they had already done with 7-Eleven. Right. There were some things that I learned along the way. At first I was like, oh look, what if the cafe owners are just keen to stock it anyway? Why don't I just go to them? Mm. And then there were some things like, that really, really basic, but I just switched into commerce law, studying right. at the time. Right. I used to be like a left wing, hippie doing arts and, and law right. and I thought business was the worst thing in the world and I was such such a hippie in that regard. Right. I thought everything that's wrong with the world is in business. Right. But there was one subject, um, micro, uh, micro, I think it was, was it economics? Okay. Yeah, it was yeah. really simple, but we learned this concept of supply and demand. Right. It was so, so simple, but it blew my mind being right. an art student, right? <laughs> I was like, wow. Like, And then I was able to tangibly apply that to other areas. Right. So I was like, all right, if I want to convince a cafe to stock this, how do I do it? There are multiple ways. List all the ways. I can go ask them. They might say yes, but there's no pressure. I'm like, what are cafes? When do cafes listen? When do companies listen? They listen to their customers. Why? They make money off their customers. They add value to their customers, right? So, like, really my focus should be on convincing their customers, incentivizing their customers to tell them that they want to stock. Thank you. So we did, you know, we did a little event. It was pretty cheeky. Um, oh, we can, nobody ever knew until later that we actually 
did the whole change. Okay. Like we didn't put our whole name on it right. because we didn't want to because we yeah. sort of uh, we asked people to post on the wall of the cafes with a selfie and keep it really friendly and say, hey, can you stock? Thank you. Right, right, right. And then we gave an incentive to do that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It only took like 20 or less posts to get them to switch. Right. didn't take thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took like less than 20 people to make an impact on yeah. 400 lives. Yeah. Um, and the cafes weren't grumpy. I was like, when one of the cafes called me and they sort of said, oh, are you the, the stockist of thank you? I'm like, no, no. <laughs> I'm like, we just, we just want to impact 400 lives and yeah. we're really happy you want to switch, but here's their number. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it was really great. The next conference, Dan came and did a talk and it was yeah. just fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of, it seems like when you went into university, you had a, you had a passion for, for making a difference. Where did that come from? Was that sparked by some sort of experience? Or? I think I've had a lot of travel experiences being younger. Yeah. And like when I went to India for the first time, I think I was like 14 years old. Right. And um, my mother sent me there on a one-way flight <laughs> <laughs> on my own. And then my grandmother was on the other side to pick me up. And yeah. I spent like three to four months living there. Okay. I mean, my mother thought I was going to boarding school. Okay. And I, ref- I was quite a headstrong, stubborn kid. Right, and I was like, right. I refuse to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so she put me on a one-way flight and I came back four <laughs> months later. But... I think one of the best things that came out of that was that at that young age, I got to live in middle-class Delhi. My mother's family weren't very, they're not very well off in India and I lived in the house and like, you know, the ceiling's only a few centimetres above your head and it's, you know, proper middle-class Delhi. And that was when I got to see like just some of the, some of the simple things I'll never forget. I was like staring at this um, little storeroom. I had a flashback to a conversation I had with my, my mum when I wasn't I was complaining about stead- like I was studying and I was like, oh, this chair's not comfortable enough and you know, just any excuse to stop studying. Yeah. My mother's like, she's like, I used to study with a candlelight in a storeroom sitting on this staircase thing. Right, right. Stop complaining. And yeah. I was like, why is she saying that? Like I could not relate. Yeah, yeah. And there I was sitting here staring at this tiny little like, you know, two metres by one metre storeroom mm. with dust and like can- old candles and like an old mm. light hanging off from the electricity used to go. I was like, wow, this is where she grew up and where she studied. Like, I, damn, I give her such a hard time. <laughs> but as I, you know, explored the neighbourhood, I really got to see firsthand what poverty is right. and firsthand sort of all of that and that sort of always stuck with me. Right. And I've, since then, I've always wanted to make some sort of impact and that led to sort of more interest in social justice. Mm. It was that experience and the second experience that really cemented this was actually attending a conference called um, by United Nations Youth Association. Okay, cool. Yeah, so when I was in year 11, I think, or 17 or something, I just, year 11, I moved to Melbourne yeah. and my parents stayed back in my hometown and I moved um, from some country New South Wales right. and with my sister. And I went, I, I had no friends, I didn't know anyone. Because a new school, really small school, yeah. I was quite a nerd. Like, to, okay. to today, I'm still in touch with my, <laughs> I still email my teachers and ask how they're going yeah, and, you yeah. know. And I was quite a nerd and I did the whole, YouTube, got involved in debating and school yeah. captain, did all of that. And it was, like, I learned a lot through that. Yeah. But I was, I was getting a bit bored with extracurricular. I'm, I've never been, I mean, I've played netball for about four or five years, but I've never been hugely into sports. I can't paint, <laughs> I can't sing. <laughs> yeah. So like all the things the school did in extra quickly didn't really appeal to me. I yeah, tried right. singing, I was really bad at it. Right. Um, so that's where I found the UN Youth Conference and right. I signed up to it. Like the school didn't tell me about it. And yeah. this is one of the other things I've got to say about opportunities. Stop waiting for them to come to you. Mm. If you're proactive, you've got to find the stuff mm. that interests you. Mm. Number of young people say, oh, but my school doesn't do it. It's like, my school didn't do it. I Googled what do young people do in Melbourne? And I put like social justice or, yeah. you know, and that came up and so I printed the forms and I signed, like, you know, I've got my sister to sign them. And then I went to school. I was like, I want to go on this camp. Can you guys sign it? And they're like, Daisy, what are you doing? We don't know what you're, you're always signing up to stuff. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm interested. Yeah. And so I went along and, and that was the state conference. Mm. Back then they used to have sort of this selection process and I didn't even know. 
I was so underprepared and there was debating, model you and debating, I was completely daunted. I rocked up and and we did a bit of debating, but what interested me most was like the discussions about like policy and social Mm -hmm. impact. And after that, they picked out of the 100 odd people that went, they picked the top 10 to go into a national conference and I got picked. And so I went along and that was exciting because I got to meet 10 people from every, eight to 10 people from every state and territory, as well as I think a delegation from New Zealand and Japan. And so it was about 100 young people talking about change and I'll never forget, so I was like 17 and that's the first time I had Dan and I was 17 I was like, and he was I think like 20 something and I was like, wow, "Wow, I am so behind in life. (laughs) Like, and I was like listening to all these inspiring people. I think the most inspiring thing is I'll never forget there was like a young girl called Priya. She was like 19 something and she started her own charity in India and then there was Dev who'd gone around Australia with I think United Nations acting as a youth rep or something and then there was a few others who'd worked with sort of activism. And it sort of occurred to me, I kept thinking when I was older, I was going to make an impact. Like, mm-hmm. oh, when I'm older, I will make an impact. Right. God, that's bad English. <laughs> <laughs> English is my second language. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that experience really made it relatable rather than, you know, an old white man speaking where I'm like, right. oh, you know, someone much older. I was like, these people are young and they're doing, they're making an impact now. Mm-hmm. And that's when I came home and I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Right. And like I, that's, I just decided, I told my parents and you know, they had dreams for me to be a dentist and I was like, yeah, not yeah. going to work, no. <laughs> my ethnic parents were a bit disappointed. <laughs> but yeah, that, that experience taught me that it's actually achievable. Right, right. That made it more like something I could actually do rather than just inspired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, wow, it's, I can actually get involved. And shortly after, I, as soon as I graduated, I started facilitating and then became like, you know, social um, community events manager for them. And then within yeah, a year, cool. I became the HR director, the youngest sort of HR director at 18, managing 150 volunteers for them. Wow. Yeah. And that taught me a lot about committees and planning right. and efficiency. And I yeah. like valued my volunteer work so much because it yeah. kind of taught me more than my jobs on the side at bars did. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you spent some time in Tanzania and you started up a, an organisation called Zana Consulting. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that and how that... That, that was actually really interesting. We did that in like two to three months during an internship, actually. Right, okay. I originally went there. The, the CEO of the company, Anza, Krupa Patel, really inspired me. So I found out about, about her through a mutual friend. And someone said, hey, well, she, he's like, oh, I think you'd really like my sister. She's, you know, all the stuff you talk about with Seiko and Social Enterprise Collective. My sister's always talking about that stuff too. So maybe you guys should, you know, get on Skype. So I did and I didn't really know her well. And she was at the time, I think she was like 24 years old. And she employed, sorry, she employed 20 people and had 20 volunteers at an organization. She's never been to university and left her comfortable home in Wales all the way to Moshi, the foothills of um, Mount Kilimanjaro, to start this organization. And she's she's stuck at, you know, she's still there. And now they have one of the largest co-working spaces dedicated to impact organizations in East Africa. Um, They've started a luxury women's leather handbag company brand called Kali, which gives work to women in need. And they've started a number of enterprises. But anyway, even when she was 24 back then, it really inspired me. And I thought, I want to learn of someone like you. Like, I want to go there and be immersed in that. Some of the best ways, I think, to learn is to find your role models or people who inspire you who are actually acting and just just observe them, like, you know, yeah. st- spend time with them. We don't right. do that enough. Often we see people and we're just like, oh, they're amazing and we never, you know, we don't write letters to people and, like, mm. things like that that get you to connect with them because, mm. like, really, it's a bit overrated, but surrounding yourself with people like that, that energy is, mm. is contagious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what you can learn off them. So, yeah, so I got on a call with her and then she sort of said, do you want to come here and do an internship? We're kind of thinking of setting up impact investment. We need to do research on the investment sort of landscape here. And I was like, 
you know, for me, it was like, oh, it means I'll go there and I'll Google it. It's <laughs> like, sure, I'm up for that. And then while we're there, I also managed to convince another friend of mine, James Wong, um, who had built Impetus Consulting Group, or right. involved in building Impetus right. Consulting Group at Monash. Yeah. He's a super smart cookie. And uh, so I convinced him, I said, hey, do you want to go to to Africa with me and do this and surprisingly I think a couple of weeks later I was like yes I will come <laughs> and he normally makes very rational decisions yeah, um, yeah, exactly. unlike me I was just like in a week yeah let's buy tickets we're going to Tanzania yeah, yeah. James was sort of <laughs> calling me up he's like have you got your insurances your vaccinations and I was like no what what do I need I've got a ticket yeah. <laughs> uh, don't recommend doing that but anyway and um so yeah we took off there and there's another guy called Devin who's from Canada and we just worked really well as a team together right. And we sort of set that up. And it's, it's wholly owned by Anza. We realized there was an opportunity. Yeah. So when we went there, we realized that there was a lot of American, like, like, you know, American companies from the UK uh, asking advice from Anza to set up their companies in Tanzania. Right. But they knew nothing about procurement, language, taxes, like all of the, the, the knowledge you have about setting up what you've set up in, in Tanzania, like what Anza had, yeah. that could actually be packaged up and sold as well. So we started sort of a consultancy arm for them, which all of the profits went back into Anza. I really, I worked more particularly with the pro bono clients because I really enjoyed them. And it was more about providing them advice, guidance. You know, some of them needed new websites, new logos. Some of them wanted to know how they could get accreditation with fair trade. And we'd we'd sort of talk them through that, work with them to do that. And was it a thing of the the commercial clients subsidising? That's that was the intention, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think even later they ended up having from like after like Kilimanjaro Co-op Bank as a client, right, so they've they've right. I think gone from strength to strength. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were only involved for a few months, yeah. Yeah. Cool. We set it up and sort of. You you mentioned before a point about people, I guess, reaching out to people that they're inspired by or people they kind of want to be surrounded by if someone has a particular person in mind yeah do you have any kind of like practical tips about how they should should go about that I did a talk actually just a, a few weeks ago to some high school students that came for a Deacon Inspire right. event and, and it was all about this and yeah, yeah. there's ways I mean some of the simplest thing is like the first time is always scary okay. like I remember the first time I called outreach to someone I, I retyped that email like five times right. and I thought oh my god what, what are they going to think mm-hmm. but as long as you're curious I mean I think there's some tips is that find people that inspire you and just, you're not asking for anything of them. You don't have to be, sometimes people are like, be specific in what you want, but sometimes you're, that can just be, I want to learn more about you. Mm. And you know, that people love that. People forget, like, as being, you should really leverage the fact that you're a student. It's a lot harder to do that stuff when you're older, right? right? right. Yeah. It's a lot harder to be in your 30s and be like, I want to learn off you, <laughs> you know? So when you're younger, people love being able to help. Mm. So if you find role models and just reach out to them and like, you know, hey, Sarah, I'm really, really inspired by the work you do at X organization. I've been reading, you know, be specific. I've been reading your blog post or your book on this. And I particularly like the fact that you said this. I would love to grab coffee with you and learn more about this, this and this. Are you yeah. free next week? And be yeah. very, sp- I hate when there's back and forth on right. finding a time. Yeah, so yeah. be very specific about when or, you know, and, and like I can come to you. And yeah, yeah. often these are such simple things that people forget. And yeah. it's totally fine if people don't reply. Get, that's one of the things I got over really early on in like I used to do door knocking. Yeah, so yeah. I got so comfortable with rejection. I did call centers, cold right. calling. Wow. So I got so used to being hung up on that yeah. it became like, you know, <laughs> like this is, yeah, that res- yeah, yeah, it builds a lot of resilience. And right. even like for, for every person I've reached out to and has got back to me, there's probably 15 to 20 that haven't. And I still, you know, to this day, I'll still reach out to people that really inspire me. They might not get back to me and that's fine. Yeah. But there's people who have and they've been so generous with their time and I've, you know, built lasting relationships with those people. I think when it comes to that, it's just get used to being rejected. That's, mm. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's more, think of the opportunity you're going to lose by not being able to learn from that person. Yeah. 
Yeah. One activity I did, if I just um, want to share this because I think it was yeah. really useful. I was at this workshop. I forgot what it was, what it, where it was, but I think it was the Foundation for Young Australians. And the facilitator during the lunch break asked us to do. Actually, it was Al Jeffrey who you've done a oh, yeah, thing yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he um, asked us during lunchtime to do something interesting. He said, "I want you guys to go out and intentionally fail at something. Right. Succeeding in this will be you failing. Yeah, yeah, so right. it can be anything. Just go and fail during the lunch break." Right. I went to this um, cafe and I was like, I was sitting there having lunch. You know, I had an assignment to do, so I wasn't really focused. And, you know, I, I failed at the experiment because I didn't even try, right? right. I, I, so I didn't succeed in any way at what they wanted me to do. And I felt bad about it. But right towards the end of the, the lunch break, I hadn't done anything. I didn't know what to do. There was this lady who was in the workshop with me. And she said, like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know yet. So we both walk up. I mean, I vicariously lived the experience through her, which was really good. She did it and it was just so great. So she went up to the counter and it was time to, you know, pay the bill and we paid the bill. And then she sort of asked with a completely straight face, there was a whole, um, uh, there was like eight to ten muffins sitting there worth 70, 60, 70 dollars yeah. and sweets. And she just asked with a completely straight face, can we have all of these for free? Wow. Yeah. I cringed <laughs> and I was like, oh, like, you know, and she goes, oh, well, you know, we're just running a workshop upstairs. We'll give you guys a shout out on social media. Yeah. And I'm waiting for this lady to be like, what? No. <laughs> and this lady goes, sure, let me pack them all up for you. <laughs> wow. And then we walked upstairs and gave all those muffins out. And I was just like such a simple lesson yeah, in that yeah. you never know what you can get until you ask for it. Mm. And like, you know, I was reading Richard Branson's book as well. Uh, I think it's called Like a Virgin. Right, right. And he, I think it was in that book. Was, I don't know if it was in a blog post, actually, I don't remember. But he shares his story of how he bought Necker Island. Right. And, like, he originally made an offer that made the seller laugh at him. He made such a low offer. Yeah. But he just confidently made it and walked away. Yeah. And I think some time later, I know it was months or years later, yeah. the guy who wanted to sell the island was financially struggling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's hard to sell an island. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like you put it on realestate.com. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he reached out to Richard and sold it for such a, like, you know, much, much lower than what, was, what they were trying to sell it for. Right, right, right. But had he not have, you know, negotiated and haggled, then he wouldn't have got that island. Mm. So it's just a matter of being so comfortable being rejected. So tying this back into reaching out to people, it's people not replying to you, don't cons- like, you've just got to get really comfortable. It doesn't mean they rejected you. There's various reasons. They're really busy. Yeah, yeah. Like even these days, sometimes I don't get to get back to everyone. I'd love to, right, right. but there's people that are just really busy. Yeah, yeah. So it could be other things, but being persistent is really good. Mm. Like I, when I wanted an internship once, I emailed someone that replied to me. I called them. I found the number. Like, Hi, I'm Daisy. I read about you. Yeah. <laughs> Can I do an internship? Like we don't offer internships. Yeah. I know. But I just want to observe what you do because right. I'm really interested in your organization. and It's inspiring. And, and then before I knew it, I had an internship there. But it did take like reaching out to them four times to get them to lock it in. What you're doing with Bendigo Bank at the moment. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So I joined as a director when I was like 21, so I'm 24 now. But that was, so the model for Bendigo Banks is there's Bendigo Bank, which is an ASX listed large bank. It's the fifth largest in Australia. And then there's Bendigo Community Banks, and they're actually different and people don't realise this. They're a franchisee of Bendigo Bank. And I think, don't quote me on this, but across the country, I think there's four or five hundred and I think 80% of them are community banks. Okay. Most customers don't realise the difference because it'll say Bendigo Bank, like a real like example from where I'm from, there's Camberwell Bendigo Bank, that's a corporate branch. Okay. Then there's one of our branches, Canterbury Community Bank, that's a community bank. Uh-huh. But the okay. everything's the same. Right. But the difference is if you open an account at a community bank, 
60 to 80% of the profits made on your account go back to the community, wow. which is a pretty big difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like one of the most, like they're like one of Australia's oldest social enterprises that nobody really talks about yeah, because yeah. it's like an older brand, right? Right, right, right? But we talk about some of the more of the savvy ones and I think there's huge opportunity for them to explore and that's what I'm trying to help them with on, on the board at the moment mm-hmm. in terms of that communicating. But yeah. I got involved and in, in it's been like fascinating at the time, the chairman, Julian Byron, who's I consider her sort of a mentor mm-hmm. to me now. She asked me to be involved after I'd been volunteering for the Youth Foundation since I was 16. Okay. I've just stopped recently, but right. that was sort of a, gr- a we give out grants to youth projects for about right. $1,500 in the Burundara area. Okay. And I got involved just on the grant committee helping give out grants, assessing right. them. Because right. at the time they pitched it, I was in year 11 and I didn't. I was like, I don't have any ideas, but mm. hey, I get to assess them. I get to be a philanthropist. It's mm. great. <laughs> so I joined them. What I didn't realize at the time was that that foundation was actually fully funded by the community bank in a very interesting model right. for okay. youth by youth. The okay. committee that decides on the money given yeah. out is a committee comprised completely of people under 25. We even have someone as young as 14 on there. Okay. Wow. So they get to learn these sort of crucial critical thinking mm. skills, assessment skills, how you dish out money when you know you've got limited resources how do you assess based on merit those are all really good skills that the, the committee gets to acquire mm. but after I joined that the, the chairman shortly after I contributed to that and I stuck around for a while she asked me if I wanted to join the board to observe and so I joined the governance committee and I would go to board meetings and I would she then later after asked me to chair the youth advisory committee right. and the terms of reference were set out to provide the bank uh, advice and guidance on how on the matters that young people in the local area care about how we might be able to enhance our banking with them as well to oversee our youth projects. Right. So we, we run four of those. We sponsor scholarships to Magic Moment Summit. Yeah. We have a business boardroom program. We select four high school students who get to, for a whole year, experience what a publicly listed company is run like. Branches are quite large now, as in they've got about, I think, $600, $600 million in footings. Okay. So they're listed on the, ASX, uh, on the NSX now, and right. we have sort of 800 shareholders. Right, right, right. So they get to, you know, the, the board meetings are run in a formal manner, and they, the four students get to learn and get a glimpse into how yeah, a public yeah. listed company's run. Yeah, and that's sort of unheard of. How often do, you know, young people right, just get to yeah. have that sort of work experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sort of my role there in the, mm-hmm. serving in the governance, chairing the Youth Advisory Committee, overseeing the youth projects and also seeing how they can communicate in a way that appeals to young people and just, I guess, add spreading that message of, mm. you know, it's one of the only banks, large banks, that's completely divested from fossil fuels. Right. Yeah. Banks. So that's yeah, what, right. it really aligns with my passions. Yeah, I realise yeah, it's so, yeah. I mean, a lot of young people care about the environment, mm. but you can ask them, who do you bank with? Yeah. Say so big four. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I would like to see young people put and even if you don't have a lot of money, put your money where your mouth is. If you're, you blog about environmental things and you care about them, you should be conscious in your purchasing decisions because you get to vote with every dollar you have. Mm-hmm. And switching banks, it's like, it's sad, but the big banks know that once young people are hooked, they're hooked on a bank. They don't change because of the, the frustrating process of changing. But I challenge you to think about that. I mean, there's some great banks out there. Bendigo's one, community banks. Bank Australia used to be called Bank Meco. is completely customer-owned. And there's a whole bunch of credit unions. Right, so I think... Um, always starting with looking at how you're spending your money is is a really good place to start. And that was one of the other reasons that it appealed to me to join the board of of a company. And I've learned so much about governance, leadership, strategic planning, Mm. things I never would have learned in a basic job. So with the the branch itself, does that mean... um, We have four branches. branches, Yeah, Canterbury, Ashburton, Surrey Hills, and we're the company that operates those four branches. Yeah. The the money, the product, is owned by Bendigo Bank and the staff... We fund the staff, there are staff, but there are also Bendigo Bank trained staff. Okay, okay. And then 
the profit generated from each branch goes into that local community or is it like in that area burundara yeah we've extended it to ashwood as well but mainly burundara area okay and is that all youth focused or no so we i think about last financial year we gave about 600 600 or seven hundred thousand dollars back to local community it can be various the youth projects specifically are run through the foundation and the scholarships and junior observer business boardroom program Money can go to youth groups as well. They just have to apply every quarter. We open applications and we'd love to see more of those, actually. I guess you've already answered my next question, which was around um, how the hell you can get into a position like that, but it's clearly by getting involved. Getting involved in relationships is everything. Just contributing. Like, I never joined the foundation to become a director of a bank. I never thought that was, in my, that was not ever a thing that I thought I could achieve or I thought I was capable of. And I, you know, like everyone, I really struggle from imposter syndrome. Mm. Sometimes I'm sort of sitting there thinking, am I even good enough to be here? Mm. You know, when all the other directors are like 60 and white males (laughs) with extensive experience on serving on boards and things like that. I'm like, what am I doing here? But I realised, look, the strength I do bring there is an understanding of young people, community investment, digital marketing, Mm. and those are things that if you look at the future of banking and fintech, banks are going to be disrupted. So I think having an awareness and an understanding of how that might disrupt and how that has implications on your industry that's all very useful stuff to bring to the table mm-hmm. yeah and I guess getting getting involved in the youth foundation but relationships is really key mm-hmm. like I always kept good relationships with the different directors and, and the chairman and that was just I just see that as a natural thing but I realize a lot of people don't yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. really interesting actually I might even share and I don't think I've shared this before but or I might have actually at the last talk but one of the things I actually applied for a job with the foundation when I was like I think I was like 20 maybe 21 and I didn't get accepted and I remember being like why didn't I get accepted and then it was shortly after that it was a part-time two-day-a-week job like helping with the foundation and so I got rejected but you know something even better came out of it shortly after that like oh we we think you're really bright do you want to join the board Mm. I was like oh (laughs) sure okay and I remember my head in my voice was like I'm not smart enough I'm not smart enough it's like I just watched like Sheryl Sandberg's talk on why right. there's too few women in leadership. Right, right. That, and that's one of my favorite TED talks. And I was like, just say yes and work it out on the job. Mm. And I said yes and sort of since working it out on the job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's in my spare time. It's not like a job per se. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair How did you kind of find the confidence to, to speak up in an environment like that? It's taken yeah. a while. Yeah. Like I wasn't confident for the first year as a director. I didn't say anything. Right, right. I think like... I think confidence, you know, one of my, the lady who was helping me, um, I'm working on a book at the moment called Quarter Life Crisis and I had a book writing mentor who previously helped me, Catherine Mullenscott. She was great. I think we we're talking about this and one of the things she said is confidence really comes from competence. Okay. And often we think we're not competent at something until we have years and years of experience. But you can acquire that competence through trial and error and through, you know, putting yourself out there and having, you can gain that experience mm-hmm. faster yeah, yeah. by taking on volunteer roles and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I guess I've become more and more confident the more, like in my spare time, I read about the banking sector. I read about fintech. I read about policy. I read about all these things that matter. Mm -hmm. And so I make sure I'm well informed on these things. Mm -hmm. And any, like, you know, anyone can read about all of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I, re- you know, I, I try to have a more in-depth understanding of digital marketing trends. I've taught myself how to build websites. I taught myself design on Canvas Free Design School, right. and that's given me a really design thinking approach to things, which has all been quite useful. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've enrolled into Acumen courses online, which are completely mm-hmm. free. This is all outside of university. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I, as I've learned more and more and where I can think I can actually add value, I am more confident. Where I'm not, I'll happily say, I don't know enough about this to comment. Right, right. I need more information. 
just before we wrap up, I wanted to touch on Deacon Spark and what your role is there. Yeah, what you guys kind of look for, particularly in terms of social enterprises, what kind of makes a, a strong social enterprise? Social enterprise is really interesting. Like, I've, I guess I've been trying to understand that space for a long time. I still say trying, even though we founded Social Enterprise Collective and things like that. The more and more I learn about social enterprise, I think if the enterprise is solving a problem, and they're doing it in a conscious manner, for me that ticks the box. There's different schools of thought when it comes to social enterprise, but the most, I think, meaningful metric and the important question to ask is what difference are you making and are you measuring it? I am pedantic about data. So it's sort of like, you know, how many lives are you impacting? How are you changing things? Uh, all of that is, is, I think, really important when, to, when it comes to social enterprise. Mm. Having a business model is important. So not relying on philanthropic funding, mm. I think, there's not-for-profits that might call themselves a social enterprise, but if they're relying on government grants and philanthropy, and should that cease, they cease to exist, it's, social enterprise is meant to be bringing the heart of like not-for-profits and the head of businesses together. So I think in, in, in Spark, so Spark is Deakin University's official entrepreneurship program, but we reserve one to two places for social enterprises in our accelerator, where we provide the accelerator in general, we have $100,000 of funding, 10000 per startup, yeah. and they get six months of space here at downtown Deakin, and we have free legal advice and all of that. I guess when it comes to social enterprise, it's the one the social enterprise spaces. We look for people who have you know, the team, right. the passion to execute it, the depth of understanding of a problem. Mm. It's always really helpful if you've faced that problem mm. or in from that community, because right, right. we often can want to do good things for others. Right. You've got to have that experience at least yeah, yeah. to really deeply understand your customer's problem mm. or your the people you're trying to impact mm. to design solutions for them. Mm. So we look for that. We look for people that are coachable. So it means they're not arrogant or egotistical. Uh, you know, they seek advice. They appreciate the time mentors give them and things like that. And we look for people who've sort of got vision as well. Like, right. what, where, where do you want to take this? Yeah, and yeah. that have that like audacity and, and like ambition yeah, in terms yeah. of the impact they want to have. Yeah, just listening to this all, it seems like you're doing a thousand and one things. I was wondering how, how do you kind of manage your, your time and balance everything? And are you still studying at the moment or how does that work? I actually just stopped studying. Okay. Finally, seven years in and I do not have a degree and I'm not meant to tell people that. <laughs> no, I'm actually I can apply to graduate now with my commerce degree because okay. I finished, okay. I just haven't, yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah how yeah. do I how do I manage all of that? I, I don't think I manage it well. I think I could always improve. <laughs> yeah. I am my worst critic when it comes yeah. to these things. Yeah. I think one of the areas I definitely need to improve is, is my time management. Okay. Often, like as I'm getting to this position and different things, I realize my time's limited and there's right. certain things I can say yes to. Yeah, like yeah. it took so long for us to get to a yeah, time to yeah, find yeah, this yeah. interview, right? Yeah, yeah. Because there's these, like sometimes there are things that I want to do right, right. that are nice to do. Yeah but time is the limited resource I have. Yeah, so if I invest it in X, it's, I, look at, I, I really look at time in terms of return on investment mm -hmm. and not financial return always, but like return on what's the maximum impact I can have. So if I spend an hour doing this, how many people can I impact? Yeah. And so, yeah, so I think I am trying to get better and better at that and I don't have any advice. If you yeah. guys do hit me up, <laughs> yeah. I'm always reading about like, you know, yeah. productivity articles when I should probably be getting sleep. <laughs> I was like, how to be more productive, how to get more sleep. It's like, I should probably be sleeping, it's 1am now. <laughs> but I think it's just, focus is an area that's really important. Right. I sometimes have that. I find that there's times I'm more focused, there's times I'm less focused. Mm -hmm. So I try and really hone in on the times I'm super, super focused mm -hmm. to be able to get more results out of the things I do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Having a good team, like I don't do everything by myself. We, at Spark, we have four staff on our team at the moment. Mm -hmm. 
as well as sort of an entrepreneur in residence. And yeah. I've been lucky to hire some brilliant people like Josh Farr, who's our, he managed our pipeline programs, our right. ambassador program. Yeah. Ayush has just joined us. He's brilliant. And Mary um, Minas from, from Melbourne Uni, she's got her master's in, in entrepreneurship and cool. she's such a fabulous person. So I think when it comes to managing time, if you're starting initiatives, Get people that you can actually rely on and can as self-starters. Right. Yeah. That that frees up your time to do impactful things mm. as well. Cool. So I think that's one tip if you're starting an organisation. Our last question is: Is there anything else you would like to add? And any books or films um, that you recommend for young people uh, who want to make a difference mm -hmm. or have inspired you? Books. I'm reading Lila Jana at the moment. Give yeah. work. Highly recommend. I mean, if I look at my role models, it's Lila, Jacqueline Novogratz, and like Martin Luther King. <laughs> in, that, in that, you know, right. going Lila, I think, you know, oh, I might actually be able to be someone like that someday or close <laughs> to that. Jacqueline's like, maybe. And yeah. Martin Luther King's like, maybe, maybe. I don't know about that, never. <laughs> but like in that, you know, I get to draw a lot of inspiration yeah, from yeah. him. So Give Work, really good. I love, I love Audible. So your first book's free on there, jump on there. And, and she narrates it, so it's kind of like you get to know her. Yeah. <laughs> I love that when authors narrate their books. Yeah. I'm a really slow reader. Right. I'm like, I sometimes feel like a self-diagnosed dyslexic. <laughs> I'm so slow, so I like listening to audiobooks. Right. Uh, second one is Jacqueline Novogratz, um, The Blue Sweater. Mm -hmm. That's really, you know, I think I cried three times reading that. Wow. She's been voted as Stanford's most impactful alumni of all time. Yeah. She started Ackerman Foundation, which is a not-for-profit venture capital fund. So they mm -hmm. invest in entrepreneurs that solve problems for the bottom of the pyramid, the poorest people in the world, giving you know enterprises that provide access to you know health, education, infrastructure, things like that. Yeah. So they're the two books I'd highly recommend. I'm a huge fan of just lately I've been reading Morning Brew. It's like your, it's witty business news in five minutes. Not everything's relevant. It's, yeah. it's like sometimes I feel like uh, people who are interested in social entrepreneurship can get caught in a bubble of social enterprise. Yeah. So I think it's really good to understand what the, what's happening in the broader world and to be able to pitch your solutions differently based on who you're talking to. So I still try to be really aware of what's happening globally and understanding like economic policy lately has been interesting for me, reading about world news because... You you don't you can start with why, but you always need to tell your story in a way that appeals to people. And being yeah. more aware of things outside of the social media bubble helps you convey your message in a way that different stakeholders can understand. Seth Godin, huge fan, book linchpin again. Seth Godin, he does a daily blog. I love. I think I almost read that every day. I'm hoping to sign up to the Alt MBA online as well, which okay. is a crash course. Not an MBA, it's like an alternative MBA supposedly, but it's right. a one month. Uh, thing where you get connected to like global leaders and change makers over Slack and right, right. you do you ship something like 14 projects in a month. Oh, wow. So I'm always looking to learn and things like yeah. that. So I highly recommend like anything by Seth Godin. His book, Lynchpin's really good. And he's um, a Kimbo podcast I really like. Yeah. Yeah. Organizations. Look, I learned a lot by being, I'm trying to, I don't have particular like favorites. I mean, yeah. you and youth, I learned a lot yeah. when I was 18 by serving on their executive. Yeah. I think Oak Tree's awesome. They do great work. I'm trying to think youth-led ones nowadays. Seco. <laughs> we're always looking for more people to join and keep yeah. leading what we're yeah. doing, the yeah. work we've done, the Social Enterprise Collective. So those are the ones I'd say. I'd say getting involved in like the startup space is pretty useful, mm. even for social enterprises. It's like, because you have to use, sometimes social enterprises forget, you do have to have a business methodology to what yeah. you do. You may not like it, but that is how that is how it's financially sustainable. Yeah. Often I meet entrepreneurs who, you know, pouring their heart and soul into work, but push come to shove, they need a job, they need to make money. Mm -hmm. So if they can build that into the enterprise they're making, that's better for the world and better for them and better for the impact they're trying to have. You can't continue having that impact if you don't take care of yourself, but you can do both at the same time. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much, Daisy. Appreciate your time. Oh, good. No, thanks. It's been fun. <laughs>